You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I like to do what I can to raise uh, bisexual awareness. I am very pro-bi. Uh, some people think I'm biphobic, but I don't think that's true because a lot of what I do uh, when I talk to bi people is I encourage them to come out of the closet. 70 plus percent, 78 percent of gay men and lesbians out to everyone uh, important in their personal lives, professional lives. Um, it's a Pew Research poll that found that and only I think 26 percent, mid-20s of bisexual people are out to everyone in their lives. Uh, friends, family. And that's a real problem for bi visibility. That so many bi people are closeted is a big problem for bi visibility. So I am always importuning bi people to come out. And I get a lot of letters at Savage Love from bi people who have come out and are grateful for the little uh, encouragement, little push I gave them. So to those of you who think I'm biphobic, you know, somebody who's biphobic doesn't want there to be more out bi people. I think that kind of disproves the biphobia thing. But I, I bring up bisexuality not just to, uh, be an asshole, but because it is Bisexual Awareness Week, and I want to do what I can to raise awareness about bisexuality. It is Tuesday, September 23rd, and the theme, if you go to Binet USA, every day of Bisexual Awareness Week has a theme. Uh, Sunday's theme was by history, Monday by facts, Wednesday's by media, Thursday will be recognized by men, uh, Friday by trans, and Saturday by allies, which I consider myself one. But today, Tuesday, uh, the theme for Bisexual Awareness Week is my bisexuality looks like. like what does your bisexuality look like? Uh, which brings us to Charles M. Blow's bisexuality. Charles Blow is a really terrific writer and op-ed columnist for the New York Times. And Charles has a new book coming out, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. It's a memoir about uh, his life and his journey. And the New York Times ran a front page excerpt from Charles's uh, new book uh, in the Sunday review section this weekend. And it is an amazing piece. It's getting tons of play. A lot of people are tweeting about it and writing about it and forwarding it. If you didn't see it, if you didn't read it, please go read it. Um, last Sunday's New York Times, uh, Charles M. Blow, the piece is called Up From Pain. And he really unpacks very smartly two difficult issues, issues that can be really difficult for a lot of people to confront. He writes about his experience having been raped as a child and working toward forgiveness that freed him from that pain. And he discusses an issue uh, around being a, a victim of this kind of child rape uh, that a lot of gay and adult bi men have faced, which is it really pained them that they had been raped in this way because when they came into their sense, uh, when they hit puberty and they realized that they were gay or bi, it was hard to separate those first realizations and feelings from their understanding of of that abuse and, and to had they to sit for it a long time to figure out what role the abuse may have played in it. And it's really complicated their coming out processes. And Charles writes about that and writes about that very movingly. And he identifies himself in this piece and he identifies as a bi man and writes about how that experience of abuse really complicated his journey to self-acceptance as a bi person. And again, it's a really smart piece and I'm not doing it justice and I'm paraphrasing for Charles M. Blow, which is a fool's errand because he's such a beautiful and talented writer um, that, of course, you can't do him justice when you paraphrase. You just have to go read him. The piece opens with the childhood sexual abuse, the child rape, and how Charles worked through that process. It got to a, a point of forgiveness um, for himself 
to save himself from the anger and the, and the pain. Um, it ends, though, with him unpacking his bisexual identity and coming out very strongly as bi. He writes that for a while he couldn't really embrace that term. He would describe his sexuality as complicated. Um, in part, he couldn't embrace that term for a while because of the prejudice that attaches to bisexuality, the complications of being a bisexual black man particularly. But in the end, he embraces the term and accepts himself as a bisexual person and, and writes about himself as a bisexual person on the front page of the Sunday review section of the New York Times. There's not a more prominent way to come out as bi than that. And where the piece ends is a place that I've actually written about, something I've addressed uh, when readers uh, have written me about their experience of their own bisexuality. Uh, and I'm just going to read this paragraph uh, where he really identifies the kind of bi guy that he is. I had to accept a counterintuitive fact. My female attraction was fully formed. I could make love and fall in love with women, but my male attraction had no such terminus. To the degree that I felt male attraction, it was frustrated. In that arena, I possessed no desire to submit and little to conquer. For years, I worried that the barrier was some version of self-loathing, a denial. But eventually, I concluded that the continual questioning and my attempts to circumvent that barrier were their own form of loathing and self-flagellation. I would hold myself open to evolution on this point, but I would stop trying to force it. I would settle over time into the acceptance that my attractions, though fluid, were simply lopsided. Only with that acceptance would I truly feel free. This has come up many times in the column. I get letters from people saying that I am only emotionally and intimately attracted to one sex, but I am sexually attracted to both. Um, I get letters from guys, particularly guys, who say, I can only fall in love with women. I'm attracted to women. I, I have relationships with women, but I am also sexually attracted to men, but I don't think that I can be bi. They feel like they're not deserving of that label, bisexuality. They don't know how to identify. They write me asking how they should identify. And I have to tell them that that experience of bisexuality is legitimate and valid and very, very common where someone is attracted sexually to both, but only attracted intimately, can only fall in love with one. And there's some bisexual people out there who feel that any time that this is addressed or acknowledged, that it is somehow an attack, that this is biphobia rearing its ugly, ugly head. And the irony is that not being able to address this, for bi people like Charles Blow not to be able to be out about their lopsided bisexual attractions, it actually harms bisexual people who are frustrated in their attempts to come to a fuller understanding of who they are and how their bisexuality works and how it can work for them in their lives. And for them to understand that, as indeed Charles ultimately realizes, there's nothing damaged about his sexuality. That it's not something he has to fight against or work against. But people do. They do fight against it. They do work against it because they think, they believe the bi hype that sloshes around out there, which is to be bisexual is to be equally attracted to both sexes, to men or women, or of course someplace else along the gender spectrum, intimately, romantically, that you can fall in love with and be sexually intimate with either. That's true for a great many bisexuals. That is not true for all. I would go out on a limb and say, based on my mail, it's not true for perhaps a slight majority of bisexuals. It wasn't true for Charles. And not being able to discuss it or acknowledge it, not having this be part of the bi dialogue, at least when Charles was coming to a, great, a deeper understanding of his own sexuality, it harmed him as a bisexual person. It frustrated him in his path to self-acceptance and self-understanding because this 
other kind of bisexuality, as Charles calls it, this lopsided bisexuality, isn't discussed or is viewed with some sort of contempt by other bisexuals who feel that it is somehow letting down the side or undermining the narrative. And it ain't. This is how Charles's bisexuality works. This is how a great many people's bisexuality works. They are bisexual but heteroamorous, as gay journalist Charles Pulliam Moore wrote in a post. Came up with that term, heteroamorous. Bisexual but heteroamorous. There are also people who are bisexual but homoamorous. Attracted to both, but only intimately, romantically attracted to same-sex partners. I believe that may be more common for female bisexuals. The heteroamorous bisexual seems to be more common among male bisexuals. And on Bisexuality Visibility Week, the first day, Sunday, Charles Blow struck a blow, if I may. That's why he's a better writer than I am. He would resist that cheap illusion. Charles Blow struck a blow for the visibility of a certain kind of bisexuality. And it's important that we talk about it. It's important that we be able to acknowledge it because it's going to ultimately help by people like Charles who are not uncommon, accept themselves sooner and faster than they might otherwise. Anyway, the book is Fire Shut Up in My Bones by Charles Blow in bookstores now, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Go find it. There's a lot of complaining in the bisexual community about the way lesbians and gays react often to the prospect of dating somebody who's bisexual. And I believe that part of what informs the problem, and there is anti-bi prejudice among some lesbians and gay men. There is this belief among many lesbian and gay men that bisexuality is a phase because a lot of gays and lesbians identify as bi briefly in their coming out process, which is aggravating as hell to bisexuals. And it really should be because what they're saying is because some gays and lesbians lied about being bi, that means bi's are lying about being bi, which is not true. That's a logic fail. But a lot of lesbians and gays have dated lopsided bisexuals have dated people who were able to respond to them sexually, but who were not interested in them romantically. Many of these lopsided bisexuals didn't yet know that they were lopsided bisexuals. We're still coming to that realization that they couldn't form, they couldn't fall in love with a same sex partner, but there are lopsided bisexuals out there who know it, who date same sex partners. Anyway, that is not a good, people need to be honest about what they're capable of. If you are heteroamorous and bisexual, you need to be out about being heteroamorous and bisexual. So that gay people who just want to fuck you, and there are plenty of them, will just fuck you. But gay people who are hoping to leverage some love or intimacy or a long-term relationship into their lives by dating and fucking around, maybe shouldn't date you. That would be inappropriate. That would be even exploitative. Because people tend to fuck around and date with an expectation that somebody who's fucking around and dating them too is open to something long-term. And if you know yourself well enough to know that you are a lopsided bisexual and that isn't possible, you need to disclose that. And it will undo some of the PR damage, some of the bullshit and stereotypes that a lot of gays and lesbians have about bisexual people if you do disclose that. I think some of the bad PR among lesbians and gays about bi's is created by this dynamic, by lesbians and gays becoming emotionally invested in someone who knows that they cannot return that feeling. They can fuck you, but they can't love you. To be fucked by someone that you love who can't love you back and couldn't and knew it is very damaging. And coming up today on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, we have Sarah Merck, online editor of Bitch Magazine and a podcaster for Bitch Media, here to talk with me about feminist pornography and, of course, tons and tons of your calls on both the Magnum and regular editions of the Savage Lovecast, starting now. 
Hello, Dan and the youth. I'm a straight dude from a small Midwestern college city. My wife and I have been together for 13 years, and the sex is pretty great. Over time, we sort of eased into mild BDSM and discovered they both really liked it. Uh, she to be tied up, taken off on properties, night, called dance, the usual. And uh, I like playing the role of the big selfish meaning, so I guess we're a good match that way. The issue is that one that has come up, one that has come up before in your show, uh, she ha- absolutely hates to talk about it. I can maintain a filthy monologue, but she won't say a word. And if I ask her if she's having fun or if there's anything she would like to do or have done to her, that ruins everything and uh, kills her boner. Uh, sometimes she is not into it, uh, but will put up with it to make me happy. Uh, but I can tell by her body language and how wet she is. That, um, and I can't help but ask her what is wrong, or what, and that just makes the problem much worse. In the past, I have mentioned safe words to her, but she thought they were stupid and encouraged me to just take her. We've been together for a long time and know each other well, so this still works for the most part. The problem is if we are having a standard married person fight or she's cursed by the moon goddess or something, uh, she'll throw the kinky sex at me as something I'm inflicting on her, saying that I just regard her as a blowjob dispenser when it was me treating her as a blowjob dispenser the night before that made her pussy so wet. Also, one of my big turn-ons is dirty talk, and while she has been getting to try it a little bit in the past, it was always very forced, and it took her out of the scene. So, how do I make someone use their words when uh, who loses their lady boner the moment that they say anything? And how do I encourage her to take some responsibility for her kinks when her kinks revolve around her not being in control in the first place? I have two recommendations for you. Uh, one is to get your hands on, go to your favorite local independent bookstore and order the new bottoming book, which isn't so new. It came out uh, again. It was revised and came out again in early 2001. Uh, it's by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton, and it is about bottoming. It is about being a slave or a submissive or a boy or whatever or a girl. And it's a really terrific book. It came out in the early 90s. They revised it and brought it out again in the 2000s. But your wife should probably read it. And you should also tell your wife that you're going on a bit of a sex strike until you guys sit down with a sex-positive counselor that you will locate one in your area by going to asect.org. That's A-A-S-E-C-T.org, the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And there you can find a sex-positive, kink-positive, BDSM-positive marriage counselor, couples counselor, or therapist to work with you both about communicating around this shit and to get your wife to have a disinterested, dispassionate third party tell your wife that she has to take some responsibility for her pleasures and her kinks and that what she's doing to you is really unfair uh, and dangerous because there are times you're flying blind because you guys aren't communicating about her desires or what she wants, not even in the moment, and she doesn't like safe words. And you can't communicate after the fact, it seems, uh, to plot out scenes or, or, or interests. And so you're flying blind into the submissive territory. And that is a recipe for disaster because you will someday stomp on a landmine that neither of you knew was there, or you will do something that leaves her feeling really violated and unsafe. And then all of this is off limits or a no-go area for the rest of your lives together. And it doesn't sound like that's something she wants. The other thing that she's doing to you that is really deeply shitty is that when you have your standard marital spats, she throws that kinky sex in your face and shames you uh, 
for doing these things that she enjoys. That is so cliche, shame-driven bullshit that people who haven't accepted and learned to really own their own kinks uh, will turn around and do to their partners who indulge them. She doesn't want to take responsibility, as you say correctly, doesn't want to take responsibility for her kinks, so she enjoys them. She encourages you to do whatever you want, hoping that there's enough overlap that she enjoys it too. And then in these moments that aren't very sexy where she, she trots it out as leverage to use against you and also uh, at those moments to kind of absolve herself for her pleasure and enjoyment in the blowjobs that you have demanded from her that make her pussy so wet. So I would, if I were in your shoes, go on a bit of a sex strike. No more kink, no more BDSM, no more dom sub anything until she reads the bottoming book by Easton and Hardy, and you have a couple of sessions with a kink-positive counselor. Good luck. Hey, Dan. I'm 22 and straight and dating a man who is 34 and has three kids, ages ranging from 6 to 12. Our relationship started off as purely sex sexual, and it was amazing and insanely hot, and we started experimenting with BDSM, which was new to both of us, and developed a really trusting and intimate relationship pretty quickly, probably in over a month. We started to lose interest in BDSM when we got closer to a dating relationship and decided to become exclusive with him um, because I had a very hard time viewing my boyfriend as my master. Um, now we're in a more traditional sort of relationship and see each other two or three nights a week and we've been dating for a short time, but it's been very intense, about three months. The problem is obviously the age um, and the different stages of life we're in. And I mean, the kids, I like them a lot. I've met them only a couple of times, but they're wonderful kids. Uh, but he has barely any time because he has them half the weekend. He works full time. Um, the only time we can go out during the day is every other Saturday. And I'm young and I want to go backpacking and traveling and on day trips and to museums with my significant other and whatever, you know, we feel like doing. And he simply can't. Uh, and I feel like the world is full of possibilities and he just has too many responsibilities to explore them with me. And the other part of the problem is that I really, really care for him. Um, I know I'm young, but I, I like him more than any other man I've met. And I feel so myself when I'm with him. And he's funny and he's smart and handsome and incredibly good to me. I guess my question is, I don't know how I could break up with someone who I feel like I love. I mean, I know it hasn't been a long time, but with someone I care so deeply about uh, for reasons that he has no control over, which are just because of his stage of life and despite the way that we feel about each other. Any input on the whole situation you have would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. You can have a significant other that you can explore a world of possibilities with and go on day trips with and go to museums with, uh, or you can have this guy as your significant other, but this guy can't be that other significant other, the one who can do all those things with you and lavish all that time and attention on you because, and you know this, this guy has three kids, ages six through 12. This is a problem that will solve itself in six to 10 years when his kids are all out of high school and young adults and he will have much more time because I guarantee you by the time his kids are all teenagers, they won't want to spend any time with him at all. And it'll stop. But can you wait six years? The price of admission now to be with this guy that you say you like better than any other guy you've ever dated is not getting to see him as much as you would like, at least 
in the near term. If that's not a price of admission that you're willing to pay, you should end things with this guy and go find someone who doesn't have his responsibilities, who can then lavish all of the time and attention on you. But if you want to be with this guy, then you just got to eat this. There's nothing I can say that's going to cause him to, I don't know, put all three of his children up for adoption or run off with you and ignore his responsibilities. That he shoulders his responsibilities, that he puts his children first is a really good sign about who this guy is. It's probably something that if you think about it from a bit of a distance or give it a bit more thought, uh, you could recognize as part and parcel with everything that you like about him. The ways in which he cares for and treats his children is, you know, not the same way he cares for and treats you. You guys have a romantic and sexual relationship. But that same caring, concerned person who loves you is also caring, concerned, and rightly prioritizing his love for his children at this moment. That'll fix itself in six years. I know when you're 22, six years feels like an eternity. But it goes by six to ten years. If you can't wait that long to have all of his time or more of his time and attention, then pull the plug. Hi, Dan. I have a quick question for you. Me and my husband have been married for about two and a half years now. And before we got married, we were crazy about each other. Uh, Sexually, we were like really, really driven towards one another. And I guess a lot of that had to do with the fact that we didn't have sex before marriage. And so once marriage happened, it was like the moment it happened it switched around and I have always been a very sexually positive person and always incorporated that area of my life. And so that it wasn't, uh, something that I ever thought twice about. And with my husband, it is a little bit different. He is, um, a little more reserved. He definitely likes to be the pursuer, but when that is the case, it just never happens. So we're, kind of at odds with each other. I mean, I I want this as a huge part of our relationship. I think it's a big part of a relationship. And he thinks it is something that is something that will die over time anyway. So why not kind of digress now? So that's my question. This isn't so much a question uh, from a caller as an answer to a previous caller. A couple of weeks ago, I don't know, a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, we had a call from someone who asked whether I thought it was wise to wait until marriage to start having sex. And I said it was unwise because you don't want to make what is supposed to be a lifetime commitment to someone without vetting them, without nailing down that you are sexually compatible. And you, caller, married someone having not nailed down whether or not you were sexually compatible and you have, ta-da, discovered that you are not sexually compatible. And just as a general note, I sometimes see this play out in the the lives of sex positive people and the relationships and and marriages and sex lives of sex positive people where sex positive person dates or marries someone who is sort of fundamentally sex negative, who's kind of shut down or not interested or not as open. And they believe that their sex positivity is some kind of radiation that if they expose their sex negative partner to this sex positivity long enough, they will come around that they will become irradiated with this sex positivity too. It ain't always so. I'd say there's about a 50% chance of that. Sometimes you can meet somebody who's shut down sexually or sex negative and and your sex positivity and your celebratory attitude towards sexual difference and pleasure can really bring them out of their shells. But that's not always the case. So sex positive people, don't overestimate the power of your sex positivity to cure someone else's sex negativity. Here's what you're going to do. You are going to divorce this guy. You're going to go see a lawyer and you're going to end this marriage 
irreconcilable differences. You want your husband to fuck you and your husband doesn't want to fuck you. That is sort of a basic bedrock irreconcilable difference. What's up with him? We can all speculate. A lot of guys who are gay closet cases, and I'm not saying your husband is a gay closet case, but there are guys who are gay who I've met who came out later in life after marrying a woman who were evangelical Christians and they were bullied about being gay and they thought they could never be gay. And they were so relieved that they could strike a pious pose and say that they were waiting for marriage before they would have sex, sex they really didn't want to have because it was sex with girls that they thought they had to have. And then they marry some poor woman and they suddenly have to have sex and they'll trot out some line like, you have to let me pursue you, otherwise it's not a turn on for me. And then they don't pursue or they say our sex life is going to collapse and die at some point anyway, decades into this relationship. So we might as well kill that thing now. I'm not saying your husband is gay, but it could be one possible explanation. Whatever he is, though, he needs to be your ex-husband and he needs to be your ex-husband soon. And your next husband? Fuck him when he's your fiance a few hundred times to determine that you are sexually compatible before you make another lifetime commitment. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old straight female from California. This past summer, I backpacked through Europe, and it was the best experience of my life. I made sure before I left, I would be 100% unattached to anyone romantically at home or to anyone I would meet abroad. But while I was in Berlin, I met this Dutch guy who was 21 years old at the hostel my friend and I stayed in. I ended up going off with him, and we kind of started floating around and started to make out, can't go everywhere, etc., I'm not one to have one-night flings, but I figured this one time would be worth it. The following morning, my friend and I had to leave for the next city, and I was completely content with myself to never see him again. For the remainder of summer, we messaged every day and began to Skype weekly, and this has not stopped since. It's been four months. He and I still talk. I never saw this coming, and I'm beginning to truly fall for him. He has been the sweetest and most wonderful guy I've ever met. We Skype for hours, and it only feels like 20 minutes. He has met some of my family and my closest friends, and they too have become fans of him. For the first time last night, we talked about the realistic future. I can possibly visit him in January, and he is willing to meet me in whatever country I can get myself to in Europe. He does not know when he can come to the U.S., though. I am lucky enough to have the financial flexibility and the time availability to do this. And we concluded that we would try to meet up again to see if a long-distance relationship is worth pursuing. I guess my main question is, do you think it is worth the risk for this guy? I know I'm young and I don't know much yet, but I do know he makes me truly happy and I've never felt this way before where I'd be willing to cross an entire ocean in order to be with a guy for a week or two. When you ask whether I think it would be worth the risk, what are you really asking? Let's unpack that for a second. You like this guy. You had a one-night stand with this guy. You fucked this guy and you've been in contact with this guy and you really feel a bond. You really feel like you're falling in love with this guy. That's rare. Those feelings are rare and it is worth pursuing those feelings. It is worth nailing that down. Could this be someone that you could wind up star-crossed lovers, the path of true love never did run smooth, overcoming these obstacles to be together? I don't know. You could wind up just having a great week or two if you go see him in some wonderful European country, hanging out with this boy that you really like, that you really feel for, having great fucking sex at age 20, even if that's all that you get out of it in the end is two great weeks in Europe with a hot guy. Was that worth it? I think so. But I think implicit 
in, in your question and the way you frame it and typical to the way people you know tend to think about these things unless it works out forever unless you're together until you die unless you spend the next 50 years together if you do this if you go and you have a couple of great weeks and then six more months go by and you guys are talking all the time and then you part ways you'll look back and the culture will encourage you to look back on that as not having been worth it as the risk you took having been for nothing because you didn't get 60, 50, 40 years of married life out of it. You got a great two weeks out of it. I'm here to tell you that a great two weeks are worth the risk. That a great two weeks can be amazing. That a great two weeks with someone you really like, even if it doesn't work out for the long term, you can, with the right frame of mind and attitude, look back on that as a wonderful and enriching and rewarding experience that continues to inform how you relate to others, how you regard chance and possibility, the ballsiness, pardon me, the overiness that you will show in taking this risk. If it doesn't work out, you just have to tell yourself not to regard that as proof that you should never take a risk like this ever again. You should regard it as a good thing about you that for love, for the possibility of love, the chance of love, you took this risk and you are a risk taker and you will take risks for love in the future. Also implicit in, you know, is the risk worth it question is what if I get my heart broken? You could date some guy who lives two blocks away and get your heart broken. You could wind up marrying this guy and having kids and living wherever he lives or he could move to the States to be with you and it could all come apart in 10 or 20 years or 30 years and you could get your heart broken. Heartbreak is always, always a possibility, always a risk. If you don't do something because there's a chance you might get your heart broken, if you don't date someone, if you don't go out on a limb, if you don't go pursue someone because you might get your heart broken, you never pursue anybody ever because there's always a chance you'll get your heart broken. So do I think it's worth the risk? Yes, I think it's worth the risk. Even if it doesn't work out long term, I think it's worth the risk. Even if the only thing you get out of it is two great weeks banging someone you really like all over Dubrovnik or Prague or wherever the fuck you're going to meet him, totally worth it. If you win the fucking lottery and you end up returning to Europe over and over again to see this guy, if he ends up coming here to see you, if you end up married and together for the rest of your life, Yahtzee and congratulations and that was a one in a million shot. Either way though, together two weeks, together the rest of your life, is this risk worth it? Absolutely. And you should take it. Hi Dan. I am a straight male, 24 years old. And my question was, how can I overcome a masturbation addiction? And to tell you the truth, I think I've had this problem since I was young. Um, I was exposed to porn when I was say, about seven years old. And uh, I kind of been hooked on, on it since. And I say I have a masturbation problem. I, I know masturbation is not it, like bad, but the fact that it's an addiction for me because I do it on a very daily basis, sometimes on an excessive basis, uh, then like maybe four to seven times a day. And it's bad enough that my arms are actually starting to hurt. And I need help how to get over this, how to uh, cope with this. Or if you could, you know, just direct me to some support group, that'd be great. There is a support group for you. There is an online support group for you. It is called nofap.org. It is a movement, anti-fappers. Fap, of course, being slang for masturbation. 
And they claim there are all sorts of benefits to joining the NoFap movement and taking the NoFap challenge. Everything's a challenge now, the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, the NoFap Challenge. And abstaining from PMO, as they call it, porn, masturbation, and orgasm, has the benefits of helping people recover from porn-induced sexual dysfunction, they say at their website, increased self-control, more hard drive space, because apparently a lot of people who masturbate constantly to online porn have huge porn collections that eat up all of their hard drive and commuter memory, uh, more time on your hands because there's less dick in your hand, and uh, improved attitudes apparently is a benefit of uh, not masturbating. Um, so there's that. There's also cognitive therapists who can help you get to the bottom of why it is that you engage in masturbation to a degree that it seems a bit OCDE. It seems a little bit like a compulsive behavior, and you could get to the root of why it is you do this, You know what it is. Uh, that you get out of this? Do you just have a really high libido? Do you need your sack drained four to seven times a day? Probably not. If you're doing it so much, your arm hurts. You probably are doing it a little too much. But are there other reasons? Perhaps the porn you're exposed to early as a child. Perhaps other frustrations. Perhaps you are self-medicating to a certain degree with the pleasure and bliss hormones that orgasm releases. And if you could get to the bottom of the things that are making you unhappy in other areas of life, maybe you would be less reliant on masturbation. But there are my two recommendations for you. The support group you want, if you just want to stop jacking off so much, is out there at nofap.org. But if you really want to get to the bottom of your over-reliance on masturbation, you might want to unpack that with a shrink. Hi, I am a 23-year-old female currently living in Texas. Um, I just moved back to Texas to live with my parents and to go to grad school to get my master's degree. I uh, recently just started dating someone and decided it was a good time to get back on birth control. Um, Previously, I was under my own insurance, which was great, and I was able to um, not have my parents find out. Well, now that I'm under their insurance again, they're going to find out because I'm living with them and I can't send my insurance information to another address because I still live with my parents. Um, so they, they're going to find out when I see the insurance letter and I may have accidentally used a credit card today at the clinic. Um, so my question is, is how do I broach the subject? Um, my parents are very conservative and uh, the thought of me having sex would definitely hurt them. Um, but I think it's time for them to find out. I mean, I'm in a committed relationship, so it's not like... About having sex with a lot of people. Um, so, how do you think I should broach this conversation with my parents, um, knowing that it's probably going to be a hard conversation to have? If you have crazy conservative sex negative parents, there's always the option of lying to them under duress, particularly if you're financially dependent upon them, which at age 23 you probably shouldn't be, but many young adults now are because of our fucked up economy, living at home and relying on mom and dad. And if your mom and dad are crazy sex negative perverts who would punish or retaliate against you financially uh, because you are sexually active, just like 92% of your peers, according to the Kinsey Institute, you can always tell them that you're taking hormonal birth control, not because you're sexually active, like 92% of your peers again, but because you have really bad cramps and like millions of other American women, you take hormonal birth control to take the edge off your cramps and your period. And then look at them like, and what are you going to do about it? Right. Are you going to yank my birth control pills and force me to have really bad cramps, mom and dad? 
There's also the radical option of leveling with them. I'm a sexually active young adult, like 92% of my peers, and it's really none of your business. And I'm sorry that I'm on your insurance now and you have to have the fact that I'm on birth control rubbed in your nose, but at least I'm being responsible. Right, mom and dad? And I don't have multiple sexual partners. Not that there's anything wrong with that if you're also being responsible, but I don't. And again, it's none of your business. And thank you for the health insurance and the place to live. And a word from the queers in the peanut gallery. We have to go tell our parents things that really drive them crazy, right? Thousands and thousands of LGBT youth are homeless because their religious conservative parents threw them out when they came out or were outed to them. 40% of all homeless teenagers are queer kids kicked out of the house by perverted conservative parents. Perverted sex-negative conservative parents. I really think pervert should be attached to sex negativity and not to sex positivity. We'll call your parents perverts. So you can look mom and dad in the eye and say, I am a young, sexually active, heterosexual adult and deal with the shit storm. And it should be a little less shit stormy than the shit storms that young queer kids have had to face when they come out to their parents. Hi, Dan. I have a friend. She's one of my best friends in the world, and she has a boyfriend that she's been dating for about eight months. She's American like me, um, and her boyfriend is English. They live in London together. And her boyfriend's fine. I think that he's good to her. He's reliable, treats her well. He's a good guy overall, but he really doesn't think that she's funny. And this is one of my best friends. I think that she's hilarious. Our mutual friends think that she's hilarious. She's really, really smart and just great. And we all think the world of her. And she's here visiting right now with her boyfriend. And the more time I spend with them both, the more I have the feeling that the reasons that we all really love her are sort of things that he loves her in spite of, like her sense of humor, for instance. Uh, she's here for another week and then she's going back for the fall. And I mean, one part of me feels like their relationship is going to run its course, but another part of me feels like she might just sort of fall into something with him and settle and I don't know, get married for a visa or for love or for a little bit of both. Um, so my question is, should I say something? Should I let her know that I noticed that he doesn't think that she's funny and that I hope she's not losing any part of herself in him, not appreciating her 100%, or should I just keep my trap shut and wait for this to run its course? So here's how taping the show works. We listen to a call and then uh, sometimes I just think aloud for a second and then we hit record and I start running my mouth. Uh, every once in a while when I think aloud, uh, Nancy Hartunian, who is the producer of the podcast, who sits next to me pushing buttons uh, and telling me what to do, We'll interject a little something. And honestly, after I listened to this call, I thought, you know, people don't typically like everything about their partners, every single part of their personality or their character. So that, you know, it seemed to me that if the only thing that this guy didn't like about your friend uh, was her sense of humor, if he didn't get her sense of humor, was that really that big a deal? Literally what I said out loud, is that really that big a deal? He doesn't like her sense of humor? And Nancy um, reached across the table and slapped me. And then said that it was a big deal. And Nancy rarely appears on the show. You hear a voice at the top and at the end, right? Just the top. Just the top. You're listening to a stranger podcast. That's Nancy. She says that. <laughs> uh, and so uh, after Nancy slapped me, I thought we should have Nancy on the show for a second. So why is it a big deal? It is such a big deal. So if, if I were dating somebody who didn't think I was funny, I'd be miserable. But you're not funny. 
I'm funny looking. No, you are funny. Nancy's hilarious, actually. So why is it a big deal if a, a guy doesn't think his girlfriend or wife's sense of humor is funny, if he doesn't get her? So I have found that it is actually a feminist issue. And I know that that sounds that like makes everybody's head slap down against the table. But like guys have to laugh at girls' <laughs> jokes, but they don't. Like there's this phenomenon where you'll be in a room full of people, and the men will all be laughing at each other's jokes, and they won't be laughing at the women, even though the women are funny. And there was this one time when um, I was at a party and with like a bunch of people, all of them super funny, and a lot of really funny women. And my friend Catherine got a little drunk. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she just like slammed her fist down. She said, ladies, get up. We're leaving this room. And she made us all leave. She made us all go into the backyard. And she said, the men are not laughing at our jokes. And we all sort of thought about it. We were like, oh, my God, you're right. They're not laughing at our jokes. And and I will jump in here to to interject that Catherine, who I know also, is fucking hysterical. One of the funniest people that I've ever met. Her whole family, her sister, everybody, fucking hysterical. It's just – it's just – objective fact she is funny and yet it was true like nobody was laughing at her jokes and then slowly the men started to trickle out into the backyard because they needed the girls to laugh at their jokes like that's how it goes so you think that this inability to recognize this girl's let's let's say objectively that this guy's friend this girl has a great sense of humor and is really funny you think there's some sort of gendered uh, oppression or control uh, effort going on here in the guy that she's interested in not finding her jokes funny and putting her down for a sense of humor or just not getting her that way. Most likely, yeah. Especially, I mean, we don't know this, but especially if uh, if uh, the man laughs at other men's jokes and doesn't laugh at, at her jokes. that's like Or doesn't like, laugh at any woman's jokes. Yeah. I mean, maybe he, the guy might be humorless, which is another big problem. So your advice is say something. Ah. that he should go speak to his friend and say, do you really want to be with somebody who doesn't laugh at your jokes? Because either he doesn't get you and appreciate you the way you should be gotten and appreciated, or there's something kind of creepy sexist about guys who can't laugh at women's jokes or won't laugh at women's jokes. Yes, he should say that. He should say that. All right, it's a good thing you sit next to me and slap me every once in a while because (laughs) I would have given kind of the opposite advice or just soft-pedaled it and be like, well, not everybody likes everything about their partners and maybe her sense of humor just doesn't click for him. But you think there's something creepy and perhaps deeper at work here. Yes, I do. Can I turn off my mic now? Yes, you may. That was Nancy Hartunian. She is the producer of the Savage Lovecast. She is smarter and funnier than I am, but she doesn't like speaking into a microphone. Hey, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old queer guy. I had an interesting experience this last week, and I'm not exactly sure how I should move forward with it. Um, so on Sunday, a guy that I know invited me to an orgy, which was a great time, but has gotten a bit complicated. So first, the guy that invited me is a guy that has basically been a friend with benefits for years. And recently, we tried to make something more of it, um, but it didn't work for me. And eventually, we decided just to be friends. But I think he still has more feelings for me than I do for him. But anyways, I guess for lack of a better term, I'll call him my ex. Now, at the orgy, there was this really cute guy that I got along with super well. He was incredibly nice, and I really felt like we had this great connection. Like, it was odd how much we seemed to be on the same wavelength. I would really like to pursue something with this guy and see if there was something more there. So I was messaging my ex the next day, and he said that he had been talking to the guy like at the orgy. And he had told my ex that he and I really connected. So that was, like, really great news. Um... But then apparently my ex asked a guy I like to have a threesome between the three of us, 
which I'm totally not down for. <laughs> I really liked this guy and would rather distance myself a bit right now from the ex. So I guess my question is threefold. First, how do I turn down this threesome offer tactfully? Uh, second, is it rude to ask the ex for the other guy's number since I never got it? And finally, is, if it isn't too rude, is it too forward to message a guy that I met in an orgy to ask him if he wants to hang out in a less sexual situation? Like, is that against some unspoken orgy rule or something? I'm going to take your questions one by one. One, how do I turn down this threesome tactfully? Thank you, but no thank you. It's really that easy. Uh, the only reason you hesitate to turn it down is, although you want to disentangle yourself from your ex, you don't want to ruffle his feathers or hurt his feelings or somehow make it clear to him that you're not interested in being sexual with him anymore. Unfortunately, you can't make that clear to him without hurting his feelings or ruffling his feathers or at least risking hurting his feelings. You're just going to have to say it. Look, I I think we're transitioning to a friendship and I'm just not interested in fucking around with you anymore solo or in three-way situations. I'm sorry, but thank you for thinking of me. Question two, is it rude to ask your ex for the other guy's number? Rude? Mm, no. Awkward? Yes. Uh, potentially inconsiderate, uh, which depends entirely on how hurt your ex is by your rejection, which is coming. Uh, there are other ways to get the phone number. There were other guys at that orgy who might know this guy, somebody else who ever invited you to the orgy, invited this guy to the orgy. You can get in touch with them. If you know the guy's name, you can look for him on social media and reach out to him on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, if all those avenues fail you, you can ask your ex for his number. You might want to do all that work, try to find his number through those other avenues uh, before you reject your ex in case he's so hurt by the rejection he doesn't want to share the number with you. So try to find the boy. And finally, uh, is it rude or forward to ask a guy you met at an orgy to hang out in a less sexual situation? No, no, it's charming and sweet. And what it tells him about you is you're the kind of sexually adventurous guy who can go to an orgy, but you're also uh, a whole and not emotionally damaged guy who's incapable of recognizing, uh, somebody else who happens to be an orgy just like you are as potential long-term boyfriend material. So yeah, absolutely. Reach out to him. Absolutely. Tell him you really liked him and you'd like to see him again sometime and get to know him better. Uh, and maybe next time with his clothes on, get to know him better. I know a married couple in Canada who met in a cage in a dungeon when they were both hooded, uh, wrote about them in Savage Love a million years ago. And they went out for breakfast the next morning after they were sprung from that cage and they got married uh, so you never know where you're going to meet Mr. Wright. You might have met him at an orgy. These guys definitely met each other in a cage in a dungeon in Toronto. Give it a shot. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old queer woman. Uh, I just moved to a large Northeast city seven months ago from the West Coast city. When I moved, I broke up with my serious girlfriend, We had talked about marriage, we were living together, and basically what happened was I wasn't ready. I was in a period, stage of my life where I had my shit figured out enough to make that kind of a commitment. She's 28, and she wanted marriage, and we were passionately in love and had a hard time since the move and the breakup, 
and it was rough for a few months, but we both decided that our connection is real and our intimacy is real, but circumstances were such that we couldn't be together or it wasn't a good idea to be together. So we've, after trying to figure out what a friendship long distance looks like, we've established a good relationship. There's no hint of romance anymore. You know, we don't call each other baby or say that we love each other. Anyways, she told me last night that she has plans to get married in six months. She's been dating this woman for six months, so pretty soon after I moved away. And she asked me to be there because I'm her best friend. I'm upset. I don't know what to do. Her fiancé is coming to town soon, and we had had plans to meet up because we didn't know each other, but we are both important in my ex's life, so we had plans to try to get to know each other a little bit better. And now I'm heartbroken, and I don't know what to do, if I should meet her or not, or how to even begin to process what my feelings are about all of this. You were passionately in love, not with your ex-girlfriend. You were passionately in love with the idea that your ex-girlfriend represented or the ideal or the whatever. Your ex-girlfriend is engaged to be married to someone that she's been dating for six months. That tells me that your ex-girlfriend is not very bright, that your ex-girlfriend was probably not in love with you any more than you were in love with who she really is. She wasn't in love with you. She was in love with the idea of being in love. She was in love with the idea of being married to someone, anyone. And when you opted out as well, you should have being only 23 years old. She immediately went and drafted someone else. These are really bad signs. I I think you need to take a cold, hard look at who your ex-girlfriend really is, because that may help break the spell that is, leaving you feeling so traumatized. She's my best friend and I'm so in love with her. I think you're in love with this projection, this person you wanted her to be, this person you, you know, I talk on the show, there is no one, there is no the one, there's the .73, you round up to one. You rounded this person way the fuck up. I think this person was about a .34, maybe a .42, and you rounded her the rest of the way up to one. And she didn't deserve it. What to do about the wedding? Don't go. Don't go to the fucking wedding. Maybe that will help end this friendship. And maybe that would be for the best for a while. Maybe it would be best if you didn't see her and see the woman she's dating now, your replacement in her marriage drama, the role that she cast you in, you left the production, has been recast. You don't have to meet the new actor, the person who's playing the part you were supposed to play. You don't have to meet that person if it's going to be painful for you. If you're not over being written out of this show yet, don't meet her. And I wouldn't go to the goddamn wedding. I think there's a cruelty here. There's a stupidity and and an immaturity on your girlfriend's part in rushing from wanting to marry you to rushing to want to marry this woman at six months. And there's a cruelty in inviting you and demanding your attendance at the Broadway floor show of your love that is a wedding. Because clearly it's going to make you unhappy. It's going to open wounds that have not fully closed. So do not fucking go. Don't meet this woman. Don't be a lesbian about this. 
not just lesbians are susceptible to this, but holy fuck are lesbians ever. I wish Leah Delaria was here this week to help me field this call. But this, my ex is my best friend and I'm out on a date with my current girlfriend and my ex and my ex's new girlfriend and I just feel t- like, oh my God, don't fucking do that. Get the fuck away from your ex for a while, a good long while. Stay out of contact. Don't speak to each other. Don't see each other. Being in her life is causing you pain. You do not have to be in her life. Make some new friends. Date some other girls. Go to some other weddings. Whatever you do, don't go to this one. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old female from Vancouver, Canada. And I was just wondering about the legality of some porn sites that I'm into. Um, I'm into certain fetishes um, that include rape, play, sleeping fetishes, rough sex, stuff like that. Um, However, I would be totally horrified to know that any of the porn I watch is not consensual. Um, Although I identify as a sub, I'm also a feminist and plainly just not a horrible person who wants to get off to something non-consensual. And sometimes I feel like the line is blurry. I can't tell. In an age where porn content is user-submitted, how am I supposed to know? Sarah Merck is a journalist who often writes about gender, sexuality, and social justice. She's the online editor of National Feminism and Pop Culture Media nonprofit Bitch and the host of their podcast, Popaganda, which recently had an episode all about feminist porn. This August, she published a guidebook to non-traditional relationships called Sex from Scratch, Making Your Own Relationship Rules. But arguably, the most prestigious job Sarah has ever held was serving as a judge for the Hump Amateur Porn Festival. Go to humptour.com for information about submitting, which she did for two years, uh, which required her to watch eight straight hours of amateur pornography. Hey, Sarah, thanks for getting on the phone with us today. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Dan. Okay, before we get to the details of the uh, of this question, um, I want to talk briefly about feminist porn. I get a lot of questions from people who have concerns about the way, you know, even regular porn is produced, traditional mainstream porn, and they want to know whether feminist porn even exists. Uh, and they have their doubts, even about porn that is rolled out or, pub- or pushed or presented as feminist. So I'm going to put it to you since you just did this whole piece on feminist porn. Does feminist porn exist? Uh, I would say resoundingly yes. yes and how can you tell feminist <laughs> porn from non-feminist porn? Well, uh, that's a bit of a trickier question because um, anyone can apply sort of feminist ideas to the porn that they're making. It's not like if you work in mainstream porn, you can't run an ethical set and you can't pay your performers well. Um, and you can't sort of a- approach making porn um, in a way that incorporates various body types and doesn't you know, base the actions on stereotypes or make anyone feel bad about like, themselves as actors. Like Tristan, but, Tristan Tarmino is, is a feminist mm-hmm. porn director, but, all, yeah. but makes films, directs films for mainstream porn companies that are completely yeah, and feminist. That's, and that's kind of an exciting thing that's happening is people who have been sort of in this niche of feminist porn for a long time, mainstream um, porn companies are realizing that people want that and people are willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so um, in the last couple of years, um, feminist pornographers have told me that um, mainstream porn companies are sort of recognizing the work that they're doing and being more likely to bring them on for projects. And then, I mean, the, the easiest way to find feminist porn is to um, sort of know where your porn comes from and to seek it out. 
Um, so there's a whole bunch of feminist porn sites where they're very upfront about who the performers are, um, what their ethics are, and make sure to incorporate into their porn um, a whole bunch of different body types and styles. So it's not just, you know, the sort of classic porn star looking person, but mm-hmm. a bunch of different beautiful people. Mm-hmm. And can you rattle off the names of some of these sites for listeners? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah I'd be happy them? to. Actually, um, I, I, I got a whole list from um, a journalist named Lindsay G who writes about porn and the porn industry. Um, and she's much more in the weeds in this than I am. So here's a, here's a couple ideas from Lindsay G. A really great site is called makelovenotporn.tv. And then there's a video company called Pink Label. So look up Pink Label VOD or Crash Pad Series or Heavenly Spire. Then there's a really cool um, creator named Courtney Trouble, uh, who his site is called Indie Porn Revolution or Queer Porn Tube. And then um, I also just had a really great conversation with a pornographer named Jiz Lee, J-I-Z-L-E-E. And Jiz Lee's work is great. Basically, anything that they're in, you could go watch and feel excited about. And then there's also a couple of cool porn communities on Tumblr that I would qualify as feminist porn, that they're of people posting about what they're excited about. And those are usually not sort of professional creators, but are just individuals who are sharing photos and things that they're into. And that's usually a lot more like amateur stuff. Mm-hmm. My favorite one there is a, is a really astoundingly sexy couple that you might like, Dan. That's called, it's straight though. It's called <laughs> likewildlife.tumblr.com. But you might like it because the guy is like beautiful and has a huge dick. And again, that's likewildlife.tumblr.com. I'll be sure to check that out as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> so let's let's get to the particulars of the, the caller's question, which boils down to is how can she know if the BDSM kink porn that she's consuming or that she enjoys is feminist and consensually produced? And a lot of right. people will look at kink porn uh, and, you know, the, the the it can seem violent. It can seem exploitative. That's kind of the turn on the transgressiveness uh, and, and the, you know, power imbalances, power exchange. And they could, you know, it's evident that this could be problematic, but you know, it needs to be said that there are people who have appeared in porn that looked completely vanilla, missionary position, rolling around bunnies and soft focus sex, who were coerced into doing that kind of porn. That it's soft mm-hmm. focus vanilla sex is no guarantee that someone hasn't been coerced or you know it was produced non consensually. But I, I think those issues really rise to the fore when the sex is extreme and people who are turned on by it, like this woman is who also is a feminist, wanna know, you know, is there a way to ethically consume kink porn and how can she find kink porn that is that that, that aligns with her feminist values around its production? And I think that's a really good point that you can't tell based on sort of what's happening in the porn, whether it's um, whether it's ethical or not, you know, they could be having rough sex or soft sex and it could be non-consensual either way. You know, it could be some frat boy taping their ex-girlfriend or something, mm-hmm. which is why you are responsible for the porn that you watch. If you're going down to a sleazy corner store you've never heard of and buying steaks for a dollar, don't ask me if that meat is safe to eat. Go to the Whole Foods where there's a sticker saying where it came from, that it's ethically sourced grade A meat, and then you can feel better about eating it. You know, if you're a feminist who cares about supporting porn where everyone is well paid, that's clearly consensual, that's everyone treated well, and that incorporates a diversity of beautiful bodies, then it's a good thing to pay for porn and to go to any of those sites that I just mentioned where there are tons of ethical, awesome, funny, sexy creators who are out there who need your support in order to keep making cool stuff. And are some of those people who are making ethical, feminist, cool, awesome porn making hardcore kink porn that would appeal to this feminist caller who happens to be into 
BDSM and rough sex. Yeah, uh-huh, they definitely are. A bunch of those sites I mentioned before have kink stuff. And then specifically for kinksters, there's um, a couple other artists worth mentioning. This is from Lindsay G, who recommended them to me. Madison Young, Carrie Gray, and a lot of stuff at kink.com is pretty transparently made. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say if, if you're a feminist who wants, uh, who really cares about watching ethical porn, go pay for ethically made porn and feel great about it and feel great that you're supporting these, these creators. But don't wander down to the equivalent of the corner store in some skeezy neighborhood online and watch God knows what made by God knows who under God knows what kind of conditions and then fret. Go to yeah, some place exactly. like make love, not porn TV, go to kink.com, go Madison Young is actually, I follow her on Twitter. She's a great resource because she herself is a kinkster, but very self-actualized and empowered uh, and writes about it very beautifully. She has a book out called daddy. You might want to look up if you're into these sorts of things, but definitely follow Madison Young. I just want to second you on that. Yeah. So I think those are the best. I think that's clearly the best and easiest and most positive way to find porn that is ethical and consensually made is to seek it out and pay for it. Um, if for some reason you don't want to do that, um, some red flags to watch out for just if you're watching a video and it seems icky. What will feel, what feels squicky and would be a red flag, I think, is performers who are clearly intoxicated. You know, that's, that's been an issue uh, for hump judging. We had, you know, we had, if you, you have an entry where the performers are clearly intoxicated, mm-hmm. they've said, no, that's not going to fly. Or where, um, you know, if it's a site that looks super junky, like it is some sort of back alley disreputable thing that's trying to sell you something that you don't want or is going to put viruses on your computer. Like, don't trust that kind of place. Go somewhere good. Uh, and I would also throw out there for kink porn, uh, as I've heard from some kinkster friends, don't watch anything made in Eastern Europe mm. on a kink site. Don't go to the kink sites that are made in Russia. Don't go to the one the kink sites that are made in uh, Eastern Europe because people are much likely to be coerced and much likely, less likely to be any sort of community norms, controls uh, that can be enforced by just community standards and norms and, and reputation because it's so removed. Yeah. And actually, I should mention that, um, you know, not everybody has the money to pay for porn. So on the podcast that I just did about, that's all about feminist porn, I talked with Jiz Lee about sort of how to get porn for free if you want it and you want to support those big companies. Um, and, she's, and she actually said that some places like, um, like Pink Label take volunteers to do like data entry for them in exchange for a porn subscription. So I think that's really interesting. If there's a porn site that you love and you can't pay for it, maybe contact them and say, Hey, can I, can I review this for you? Or can I do some kind of work in order to do a work trade here working for porn? Will you uh, take one more question with us, Sarah? Of course. Happy to. Hi, Dan. I am a 29 year old female bisexual GGG and very tech savvy. And as a sad result of that, was asked by my mother to clean some of my younger brother's pornography off of the computer. And like I said, I am, you know, I'm very open lady and I have no issue with partners looking at porn. I look at porn, no big deal. But I found a lot of very violent rape pornography. And if it's not scarring enough that it was my brother's, um, and I'm hoping you'll identify it because I listen to This American Life, and I know you are scarred for life by your siblings and family and physicians. Um, my, uh, the additional issue is that my youngest brother also is actually very 
verbally, emotionally, and potentially physically abusive with the women he dates. And I am in no way whatsoever suggesting that the porn is the thing that spurs this on. Um, I know this comes from his own issues, but knowing this on top of looking at what he's viewing, I am not sure how to reconcile how this porn exists in the sexual spectrum in general. And also, I guess I almost how it's even legal, considering some of the, you know, violent, the fact that it's flat out rape and, uh, and violation. Okay, I don't even know how to approach this one. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, she wants to know how yeah. this porn can exist, how it's even legal. Uh, as established by the last caller, uh, there are some women who are into rape play, sleep play, BDSM, rough sex. Um, you can go to the you know kink.com, which is the GE of kink sex. You can go there and you can see interviews with a lot of the – all of the women who appear in their films, uh, which can seem really, really extreme, talking about how this is – these are their fantasies. These are things that they enjoy. So just because the porn is hardcore or super kinky doesn't mean that somebody has been raped or abused. So the issue seems to be here, knowing what she knows of her brother – that he is abusive verbally, physically, emotionally with his partners, and he is also watching this kind of porn, has so thoroughly squicked her out that, that she doesn't know what yeah. – and her, she turns around and then says, how can this porn be legal? Well, the porn can be legal. The problem here isn't necessarily the porn, which can indeed be produced ethically, and there are women who are into this. The problem is how her brother treats his partners – yeah, I would say that's exactly the, the issue here. And what she sort of asks two pretty straightforward questions. How does this, why does this porn exist? Why are people into rape um, as a fantasy? And then she asks, how is this porn legal? But, but behind that all is this bigger and deeper and much more troubling question, which is how can my brother be this way? Is my brother going to rape somebody? Mm-hmm. And the problem here is that you have a violent brother who's abusive, that's the problem. And finding the porn sort of magnified her concern about his behavior. And as she says, the, as even as she says, the porn is not the culprit here. But that worry that her brother might someday rape somebody. Whew. Or that her brother is already verbally, physically, and emotionally abusing people right now mm-hmm. is, is a problem. But, you know, does it fuel his fire? You know, he is... Physically, emotionally, verbally abusive, and he's into porn where women are being physically, mm-hmm. uh, emotionally, perhaps uh, uh, verbally abused. How do you how do you tease those two things out? How do you separate those into two different issues, or can you? And I'm not sure if you can because it's not like only rapists are into rape porn. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people who have really healthy, positive sex lives who love themselves and love their partners and treat them very, very well are into these kind of fantasies. I mean, honestly, I don't understand 80% of people's fantasies. If it's not my fantasy, I'm not going to get it. But it's clear that people get off on what's forbidden. It's clear, that, it's clear that many people are titillated by violence and that rape fantasies can mean playing around with trust and power in a way that's really erotic when it's consensual and positive for people. Mm-hmm. You know, that giving up control over your body can be really freeing for a lot of people. So there are people it's out a, there of- who can watch kink porn for the right reasons and from the right sort of headspace, and there are people out there who watch it for the wrong reasons from the wrong sort of headspace. But the same would apply to vanilla porn. Yeah. If your brother was abusive physically, emotionally, and verbally with his partners and watching nothing but Playboy Channel softcore crap from the 80s, 
the problem would still be your brother's behavior. Yeah, I mean, in this case, it seems like her brother's, what she's worried about is that her brother is going to use these, this porn as basically a, maybe some kind of manual or idea for inspiring what him, for him to do in his relationships. But I would say the problem here is that, like, how do you talk to your brother about the fact that she thinks he's being abusive? How can you intervene effectively there? I think she should leave the porn out of it, basically. And I think the porn got her thinking about it and thinking about it in a really clear way of like, oh my God, what could happen here? But it can't be helping, can it? You know, this porn can be made ethically, consumed ethically. But here you have a sick and damaged individual, her brother, and he's watching porn where women enjoy the kind of treatment that he is inflicting on his partners non-consensually. Does that not give him sort of some kind of conscious or subconscious permission slip to continue to be the abusive piece of shit that he is? If he's consuming porn where men are doing to women what he does to his girlfriends, and it may have been done consensually, but it looks non-consensual because that's part of the turn-on, it's part of the fiction, right? Part of the role-play. How can this be... I mean, it's unhealthy for him to consume this porn, is it not? I don't know about him specifically. um, You can't get into somebody's brain and say he's doing this because of this. Mm -hmm. But I mean, uh, this sort of major question about what has been porn's impact on sexual violence in America has been debated for decades and looked at by researchers in a general way for decades. Um, And what the current research has shown most effectively is that basically you can't draw a line of causation between violent pornography, hardcore pornography, and sexual violence in the United States. As sex to hardcore porn has increased, rates of sexual violence have decreased. And that's for a whole bunch of different reasons, but that means you can't draw a straight line from one thing to another mm-hmm. in this case. His, his brain is complicated, his behaviors are complicated, as are all of ours, but you can't say that generally violent porn in the United States is, leads, leads to rape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my advice to her, and I don't know what your advice would be, but my advice to her would be to go after your brother to talk women out of dating him, to scream and yell at him, to hold him accountable, to testify against him if charges are brought. I think she needs to seek out some support here and see basically what are good ways to intervene in her brother's behavior. Mm -hmm. What can be an effective strategy for um, changing the way that he's treating the woman that he's dating? And And I hope, and it sounds like from her phone call that she's really recognized that that's something that needs to happen. I would advise her to seek out support on how to effectively do that to contact organizations that work with domestic abuse and violence and ask them for strategies on effective intervention here and seek out some support to, to help make that change. And it's in, maybe also to approach them as this is in your own best interest. You continue on the course that you're on, you're going to wind up in prison. And you will deserve to wind up in prison. And your porn, your turn-ons, your porn has nothing to do with this. This is about how you treat women. And these abusive behaviors, you've got to, stop. You've got to unlearn this. You've got to rip them out of your motherboard and it's got to end or you're going to destroy some woman and her life, but also nuke your own life and destroy your own life. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a long, hard road. And I really feel for her as she faces those kinds of choices. I think it's a really tough spot to be in. I feel for her too. Uh, Sarah Merck, journalist and the online editor of national feminist and pop culture media nonprofit bitch host of their awesome and excellent podcast pop aganda, which you should go check out. And she's the author of uh, sex from scratch, making your own relationship rules, her guidebook to non-traditional relationships. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone today, Sarah, please come back. Thanks Dan.
Hi, Dan Savage and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. Um, I'm a 31-year-old female living in the Midwest. Um, I have a question for you. So me and my husband have been trying to have a baby for the last year. Other than a miscarriage uh, last Christmas, we've had no success. Um, also, I have the uh, female ejaculation superpower. So I was wondering... There may be many reasons why we're not getting pregnant, but I'm wondering if um, female ejaculation may be a cause of it. Um, and I was wondering if you or one of your uh, expert contributors would be able to get into that for me and uh, find if female ejaculation does stop anything catching hold, any eggs catching hold inside. If not, then there may be another reason, and I can go to the doctors about that. Thanks so much. We may not need an expert for this one, but uh, maybe there's an expert listening who'd like to weigh in. Because it just seems to me, thinking this through logically, that it shouldn't be a problem. Female ejaculate uh, exits the body through the urethra, not through the vaginal canal. Uh, your partner isn't depositing his semen in your urethra. I hope if that's what he's doing, then that may be why you're not getting pregnant. So it's not as if uh, his semen is being expelled from your body. It's not – the ejaculate isn't swooshing out through your vagina and washing out his semen. There's also the upsuck theory, uh, which uh, maintains – and there's some data that backs this up. There should be more research – that uh, more semen is retained um, in a woman in her uterus uh, who has an orgasm during sex, that the contractions in the, in the, the vagina and the cervix pulls the semen further into her body if she – climaxes and that may be the evolutionary utility of the female orgasm. So if you're having orgasms that induce uh, ejaculation, female ejaculation, you're having strong and powerful orgasms and a strong and powerful orgasm uh, has been shown to result in more semen being sucked into the body and getting into those places, those nooks and crannies and tubes where fertilization is likelier to take place. So just thinking this through myself, Ejaculate doesn't wash out of the vagina. It comes squirting out of the urethra and powerful orgasms pull more semen up and into the woman's body. I don't think female ejaculation is your problem or should be a problem. But we're going to throw that out there to the listeners. And if there's an expert out there who wants to weigh in, we will, of course, play your response. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old female and I have been on a couple dates so far with this guy. He's 25 and we have lots of fun together we have a ton of stuff in common. He is um, stable and, you know, he's got a lot of the qualities that I look for in a partner. But I have a sneaking suspicion that he is really bad at sex. We've um, done lots of making out and heavy petting, and he doesn't really seem to know much about female anatomy. This worries me. Um, he he seems pretty open sexually. Um, our first date, I actually got a little tipsy and mentioned that I was into some kinky stuff, which was super classy. But um, he and the second date, he asked me about it a little bit, and you know, we kind of laughed. And I didn't reveal any details, but we had you know kind of an open conversation. And he said he seems really open and g g g sex positive, what have you. So I feel like there really could be potential and I feel like he's open, but 
him sucking at sex is and not even knowing where my clitoris is is definitely a deal breaker. So my question is, should I teach him? Should I give him a tutorial on female anatomy? How do I do this without embarrassing him? I teach elementary school, so I tend to talk down to adults a little bit when I'm trying to teach them, and some of my friends get annoyed with it. So I don't want to have the whole second grade teacher thing come out when I'm teaching him about this, if it comes to that. And could it be worth it? Do guys who suck at sex and so horribly suck at sex learn and improve? Is it possible? How do you do this? How do you tell this 25-year-old sexually active straight guy uh, that he needs to know about the clitoris, know how to find it, know what to do with it? How do you do that without embarrassing him? You don't worry about embarrassing him because he kind of should be embarrassed. You shouldn't be scoldy about it. Everybody has to learn at some time and from someone and you should tell him that this is his time and you are that someone without using the second grade teacher voice I just used and throw it out there. You don't know what you're doing. I'm going to help teach you. Everybody has to learn at some time. Everybody has to learn at some point. You don't know if he's just tragically inexperienced or if he is inept. There's only one way uh, to figure that out is to try to impart some skills, some lessons to teach him, to show him and if he still can't do it, then he's inept. But if he could just be inexperienced and clueless. And I think that's a real problem with a lot of young-ish, semi-experienced, even experienced 25-year-old straight guys. They fly along. They coast along uh, dating girls who have been socialized not to advocate for themselves sexually, not to make any demands, certainly not to say anything to their boyfriend that might embarrass him about his performance. And they coast along thinking they're great at the sex stuff. Until they meet a woman who informs them that actually, no, they're not as good at this sex stuff as they seem to think they are or they have been led to believe they are. And God bless those girlfriends who risk embarrassing those boys because they make them into better lovers. You could be that girlfriend. You could be that girlfriend who pulls down the edifice of his ineptitude and makes him a better lover. And I think it's worth trying. And if he gets embarrassed or he guilts you or shames you for not just telling him he's awesome at this sex stuff, then fucking dump him and move on. And it's worth the time and it's worth the investment. You know, if you like him otherwise, because it does take usually a good teacher to make somebody into a good lover. Very few people are just great at this sex stuff out of the gate. Nobody picks up a violin and plays it beautifully the first time they play it. And humans are a lot more complicated than fucking violins. But people have this attitude that you should be able to pick up a human and pick up their genitals and just play the shit out of it the very first time without any feedback, without any thought, without any intentional effort to develop some sexual skills. And it just ain't so. And it usually takes a partner making an investment of time and energy and effort in you before you get good at this sex stuff. Again, you could be that guy's good at this sex stuff partner. Go for it. Who knows, maybe he's into hot school teacher, second grader scenes. Hello, I'm responding to um, Nicola in episode 412, who had the very jealous boyfriend who was giving her the third degree every time she came back from attending any kind of social event that he wasn't present at. I was in a relationship with somebody that did that for 12 years, and um, I did work very, very hard to change that interrogative kind of relationship we had. With little success, he was, in fact, 
very, very suspicious of my behavior all the time because he was the one fucking around all the time. So what I learned after 12 years was to not be with somebody like that was actually really joyful. To actually be with somebody that acknowledges that people have crushes, sexual attractions, but you don't really act on them and you can just entertain each other with your stories and be open and fun and loving to each other is a lot more fun than being with a jealous bastard. So um, I really wish her luck. I would not want to be in a relationship with a jealous person ever again. Hey, Dan, I was the caller from last week's episode about the ex-boyfriend who won't take you back and won't let you go. And whoa, doggy, I think I may have found the reason behind this bizarre behavior. Um, So if my call resonated with any listeners at all, try researching something called narcissistic personality disorder. The hot and cold behavior, the gaslighting, the silent treatments, the slow dismantling of your self-esteem, the turning everything around so it's your fault, their sort of constant creation of emotional turmoil, the controlling behavior, it's all there. And um, sorry, they're very good at making you um, utterly emotionally dependent on them so they can keep you at arm's length. And, and they're very smart at coming up with new tactics to keep you coming back. And the confusing bit is that they, it seems they themselves, they think they love you, um, which makes their declarations of love seem so believable and hard to walk away from. But they don't love you. They're actually psychologically incapable, what I'm reading. And, um, and they love imagining how they look through your eyes. They love being your pain. They love being the center of your orbit, but it has nothing to do with you. They're pathologically incapable of caring about and anybody but themselves. So the crocodile tears, the I've changed, I can't live without you. It's all part of their strategy to keep you around while they're ultimately incapable of true love or empathy. So I've been reading a lot about this last couple of weeks and it really describes my ex's behavior. So I just wanted to call it in in case somebody else out there might have fallen for the same controlling psycho bullshit that I did because reading about it's really helped me and I'm a month into no contact and I'm never taking that creep back and no Dan, no magical vanilla froyo squirted from this guy's dongus, just regular old spunk. And in the words of Mae West, if you want to get over someone, you've got to get under someone new. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you'd like to record a call or question for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Sarah Merck on Twitter at Sarah Merck. And her last name is spelled M-I-R-K. Hump is coming to Minneapolis the 26th and the 27th at St. Anthony's, Maine. Uh, this is the Amateur Porn Festival, of which I am the host and curator. Please come. This is the last uh, show of the Hump Tour for 2014, and I will be there in person to introduce the films and to say hi to some of you guys in the crowd. More information about the Hump Tour and to get tickets, go to humptour.com. Also, the deadline for submitting to Hump 2015 approaches September 30th. For information about submitting a film to Hump, go to humptour.com and click on Submit Film. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian, who made an appearance on this week's show. And me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy, we will all be back after next week with another installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thanks for downloading.